The first reading is Mark, chapter 10, reading verses 32 to 45. A third time, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise again. The request of James and John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Appoint us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink of? Be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptised, you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left, is not mine to appoint, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognise as their rulers lord it over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give the life a ransom for many. Thanks be to God for his word. Second reading, Mark chapter 10, reading verses 46 to 52. The healing of blind Bartimaeus. They came to Jerusalem, sorry, they came to Jericho, and in the end his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, 
But he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he retained his sight, followed him on the way. Thanks be to God for his word. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The Baptist Union, or Baptists Together, as we're now supposed to call it, I'm told, has... What's this about? The Baptist Union is now Baptist Together. The London Baptist Association is now London Baptist. The West of England Baptist Association is now the West of England Baptist Network. Are we not a union? Do we not associate? Anyway, grump over. The Baptist Union, or Baptists Together, as we are supposed to call it these days, has recently been undertaking a significant research project, and they've called it Project Violet. It's named after a wonderful woman called Violet Hedger. She was the first Baptist woman to be college trained for ordination. And Project Violet has been investigating women's experiences of ministry. Project Violet will help the Baptists together understand more fully the theological, missional and structural obstacles that women ministers still face in the Baptist community in Great Britain as well as making some recommendations for ways forward. The findings from the project are going to be released in May, but as a precursor, they're releasing a podcast. And somewhat to my surprise, I was invited to be a guest on the first of these podcasts, exploring the history of women in Baptist ministry. Uh, the irony of inviting a man to be a guest on a podcast about women's ministry was not lost on me but I'm told this was a very deliberate strategy because they want uh, men who have questions about the ministry of women to listen to the podcast and engage with the material and if you start off with women talking about experiences of female oppression uh, the people who really need to hear it might disengage before they actually hear so they wanted to start out with with people who were going to be less threatening perhaps so that's why i ended up on on this podcast also because a few years ago i wrote a small book on the history of women in baptist ministry which is still available from the baptist union anyway you can listen to the episode and the ones that follow it from the project violet website and libby's put the information on this in the news and views email so thank you libby for doing that um, actually, do you know, this is the second podcast I've been on this year, because I was also a guest on a leadership podcast discussing my philosophy and practice of leadership. Now, I mentioned these two podcasts, one on women in ministry and one on leadership, because actually they raise the issue that we're going to be looking at in today's sermon, which is this question of who in the community of faith has authority 
and on what basis do they have it? And in our journey through Mark's Gospel, we have been seeing again and again how Jesus challenges and removes the barriers to social inclusion, things that hold the vulnerable, the weak and the marginalised in their positions of exclusion. So we've seen Jesus casting out spirits of uncleanness. We've seen him declaring women acceptable and equal. We've seen him removing the stigma of poor mental health and welcoming the powerless to the very centre of his circle. And Mark tells these stories in his gospel, not just to educate his readers about the life of Jesus, but because he wants those who follow Jesus to actually create communities where these values are made real in their midst. So to help his readers realise what kind of disciples they're to be, Mark offers us uh, the disciples gathered around Jesus as a kind of object lesson in how to get it badly wrong. We saw this last week, didn't we, with the argument about which disciple was the greatest. And we meet it again this week in the story of James and John vying for their position of power. And the key issue here is this one of leadership, of what kind of person should be a leader within the group of Jesus' inner disciples. Now, I have to confess to having a certain level of vested interest in this question. After all, for the last 25 years, in various capacities, nearly half of them here at Bloomsbury, I've been involved in the task of leadership within Christian communities. I was talking with my spiritual director about this, and he asked me how I would describe myself and my role. My answer was clear, I'm, I'm a minister. I'm not an academic, although I have some academic skills that I use in the task of ministry. I'm not a musician, although I have some musical skills. I'm not even first and foremost a pastor, although I do a lot of pastoral work. I would say that my calling is as a minister. And the key thing here is that the word minister comes from the Latin word for servant. So the leadership that I offer, that I'm called to, here at Bloomsbury and within the wider Christian world is, or at least should be, a leadership that is grounded in the serving of others, because to minister is to serve. It's not a leadership founded on status, domination or power, and yes, sometimes I know that I need to remind myself of this, and I apologise for those times where I get that wrong. I can think of other ministers who might need reminding of this too. Not just church ministers, of course, but those servants of the people who serve as ministers in our government. <laughs> so what kind of a person should be a leader within the community of Jesus' disciples? Well, here we need to note that for many centuries, and indeed still in many churches today, the primary criteria for Christian leadership is that you need to be a man. Even in these enlightened times, and even within our own Baptist family, ordained ministry is still overwhelmingly male. And within many churches, there remains strong resistance to women preaching or serving in roles such as deacon or elder or officer. And yet, and yet, I could point you to Dorothy Hazard, 
who is recognized as a pioneer church planter. She started the church that is the oldest continuing Baptist church in the world, in Bristol, in 1640. Started by a woman. I could point you to Anne Steele, who was a prolific Baptist hymn writer, with her works being included in almost all Baptist hymnals through the 18th and 19th centuries. We don't sing her so much today, but she was a huge influence on Baptist theology through hymnody. I could point you to Hannah Marshman, who is considered to be the first Baptist woman to be a missionary. In 1799, Hannah and her family set sail for India, landing at the Dutch colony of Serampore, and within a year, she had opened two boarding schools and founded the mission to Serampore, which continues in many ways to this day. I could point you to Edith Gates, who became the first female minister in charge of a Baptist church, and she did so in 1918 at the age of 35. And of course, I could point you to Violet Hedger, after whom Project Violet has been named. She was the first woman to train at a Baptist college and was then called to her first pastorate at Littleover Baptist Church in Derbyshire in 1926. I could point you to many women who serve as ministers across our Baptist family of churches, including our General Secretary, Lynn Green, and the women who we've had as ministers here at Bloomsbury, from Barbara to Ruth to Dawn. And Bloomsbury, as a congregation, we have a long and proud history of recognising and affirming the ministry of women. But friends, these stories, inspiring though they are, are sadly a minority. Bloomsbury is a minority. And a part of the problem here is that leadership in our world more generally, beyond the church, is still predicated on systems that we have inherited from the ancient world. Systems that we might call patriarchy and paternalism and patronage. See, I'm a Baptist minister, three words, all beginning with the letter P. Patriarchy, paternalism, patronage. The world in which Jesus lived was one where leadership was male. And where from the emperor downwards, power in Roman society flowed through deeply entrenched systems of male privilege. In the Roman world, every man had a master. And every master had men who were dependent upon him. And your status within society was determined by how high you managed to climb this social pyramid of male preferment. The client-patron relationship system was called patronage, and it determined most of the social and cultural infrastructure of the Roman Empire. And patronage was not just confined to the military, economic and political aspects of the Roman lifestyle. It was also linked to public displays of status and social ranking and the legal system and even the arts. To this day, we call a person who gives money to a theatre or a cultural project in exchange for some recognition, we call them a patron of the arts. This is where that word comes from. It's, it's from the Roman system of patronage. And Roman mythology told that Romulus, the founder of Rome, had appointed a hundred men to serve as senators. And these men were known as patricians from the Roman word for father. 
And the idea was that Roman society should mirror the power structure of the Roman home. So in a house, the father was head of the household, and so in society, the emperor and the patricians uh, were head of the uh, wider society. Lower class Roman men would be clients of these upper class patricians or patrons who would bestow status and power on those that served them, like a father giving special gifts to his most loyal and faithful sons. Where in all of this, you might be wondering, were the women and the children and the slaves? Well, the answer is they were excluded from this system. They had no power and they had no way of getting any. It was something, therefore, of an ideological bombshell for Jesus to say that within the community of his followers, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. This was not the way ancient society worked at all. Certainly, it wasn't the way that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, thought it would work. So the brothers petitioned to Jesus to be allowed to sit at his left and right hands demonstrates that they had completely misunderstood everything that Jesus had been saying to them about why he was going to Jerusalem. They clearly seem to think that they're part of some messianic coup, a regime change where the first century Jews were finally going to get their autonomy back from the Romans. And here in Mark's Gospel, we see them lobbying for, in effect, the positions of Chancellor of the Exchequer and Home Secretary in Jesus's new government when it comes into power. Well, they were wrong, of course. But there was then, and still is today, an expectation that a newly powerful leader will reward their most faithful servants with positions of power. We see this in some of the appointments in our own government, and it was the same back then. The rule of client-patron obligation meant that loyalty paid. And it's worth our while noting that this system of patronage didn't die out at the end of the Roman Empire. It just moved over into the medieval European societies of the 10th century and then through the systems of feudalism, it segued into the Middle Ages and courtly power and then merged into the class structures of the European imperial powers before entrenching itself in our education system. It is with us today in the patterns of preferment that we see in government with men who have attended certain elite educational schools being preferred for the positions of power in our society. This is true in so many of the institutions of our world that the Roman system of male preferment is still with us. It remains as true as it was in the first century today that the best way to get money and power is to be part of a wealthy family, to go to a powerful school, to make influential friends, and to be a man. So, for James and John in the first century, mistakenly expecting Jesus to be the next king of Israel, the request to sit at his right hand and left hand was kind of perfectly sensible, if, you know, rather self-serving. Um, it was, it was a sensible request to be those who would have power and influence in the new world of Jesus's kingdom. In exasperation, Jesus throws the question back at them, using 
the sacramental language of baptism and cup. He says to James and John, as they start to imagine themselves ruling in the new kingdom of Jesus, he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I, will be that I am baptized with? Baptism here, of course, is harking back to the beginning of the story where it all began. And for Mark's readers, at least if not yet for James and John in the story, the cup anticipates the end of the story, the shared cup of the Last Supper, the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. In effect, Jesus is asking James and John if they can truly walk the way, the path that he's going to walk, which will not be one of power and glory, but one of suffering and death. Well, James and John, the gung-ho sons of thunder, of course, say, of course. But as Jesus points out to them, they don't really know what they're even asking for, let alone what they're saying yes to. They never get an answer to their original question, you may notice. Jesus just says that such positions of preferment are not for him to grant. But for those of us who know the gospel, those of us who've already read it through at least once, well, we get to see the answer of who it is that gets to be on Jesus' left and right hand, because we know we're on the way to the cross and that it will be the two criminals who are executed next to him. Jesus doesn't repudiate the vocation of leadership. Rather, he insists that in his kingdom, in contrast to the empire of Rome, Leadership is not transferred or conferred through patronage. Leadership amongst the disciples, leadership in the kingdom of God, can belong only to those who learn to follow the way of Jesus. Leadership comes to those who are disciples, not to those who have bought it or earned it in some other way. And the way of Jesus is the way of non-violence. Leaders are to be those who are prepared to not dominate, but rather to suffer and serve at Jesus' side. And these are tough words to hear for all those of us who end up in a position of leadership in a church, whether you're a minister or a deacon or an officer or wherever it is that you serve in leadership. These words are a reminder to us that we are here to serve a cause that goes way beyond our personal needs and wants. So congregation of Bloomsbury, please don't forget to pray for your leaders. Please pray for me, pray for your deacons, pray for your officers. We are very fortunate here at Bloomsbury to have a wonderful group of leaders but they need the support of the congregation if they are to serve well. Anyway, back to Mark's story. And perhaps, predictably, things start to escalate because the other disciples start to get indignant. It starts to look as though the whole community of disciples are part of a great struggle for power. So Jesus ramps up his language and he compares the disciples to the Roman power structures that are oppressing and dominating his society, telling them that this is not the way it should be amongst them. 
The very powers that will kill Jesus are the Roman administrators, those who practice the philosophy of leadership as domination that Jesus has been so laboriously teaching against. Roman power structures demanded that the Romans would lord it over their subjects and tyrannize their people. And like the Herods and the Pharisees, the disciples are also getting sucked into this mindset of systems of domination and are enacting them in their own community. And I think this raises a question for us to consider of where we encounter dominating power in our society. Where we encounter dominating power in our own Christian community. As I've said, our world runs in worryingly similar lines to that of the first century, with systems of patronage that privilege the powerful and disadvantage the weak. And the temptation for the church is that we end up mirroring or at worst emulating those systems in our own community. So let me put it clearly. Whenever a church excludes someone on the basis of their powerlessness or minority status, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church denies or restricts the ministry of women, or those who are LGBTQ+, or those who are black, Asian, or minority ethnic, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church prefers those who are powerful or wealthy, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church does a deal with power to gain influence in society, we emulate patronage. Whenever a church justifies violence, we emulate patronage. Because the path of Christ is a path of peace, a path of inclusion, a path of service, a path of putting others ahead of ourselves. And Jesus identifies himself as the embodiment of the way of nonviolence, saying that he came to serve and to give his life, not to dominate or to take the lives of others. The Son of Man come, came to serve, not to be served. Last week, I started my sermon with a quote that, despite often being attributed to Gandhi, wasn't said by him. However, today I'm going to share a quote that was. Gandhi said that the way of nonviolence will not prevail on account of words or argument, but that it shall be proved by persons living it in their lives with utter disregard to the consequences to themselves. Well, I think Gandhi here may have understood Jesus rather better than his disciples did at the time. The path to great leadership lies not in eloquence or power but in a shared commitment to non-violently resisting the power structures that keep some down and raise others up. The path to great leadership lies in centering the marginalised, in casting out spirits of uncleanness that exclude and oppress, and in taking decisive action to restore people to right relationship with each other and with God. So let's get back now to the issue of women in church life. And in these thoughts, I should acknowledge my debt to the wonderful commentary on Mark's Gospel by Ched Myers. Judith, I know you know it well. Consistently on our journey through this gospel, 
We've seen Mark critiquing the systems of power that were at work in first century society. He's addressed political domination, patriarchy, the family system, and we should pay attention to the fact that all three of these are domination systems built on the subjugation of women by men. Mark has already argued that women should have equal rights in the marriage contract by rewriting the Pharisees' regulations on divorce. And further on in the Gospel, he will defend women against the ideology of patriarchy by ridiculing the Sadducees' arguments about leveret marriage. It's also noticeable, though, that married couples are almost entirely absent from the stage of Mark's Gospel. There are only two exceptions, and they're both minor. We get Jairus's wife being mentioned, and we do get a reference to the illegitimate marriage of Herod to his brother's wife. But other than that, we don't get any married couples. More to the point, apart from these two exceptions, in Mark's Gospel, women always appear without reference to husbands. Now, in a world where the patriarchal system considered women as second-class citizens and unmarried women as third-class citizens, this is a truly subversive narrative strategy. So why does Mark do this? Mark seems to go out of his way in telling his gospel to discredit the male disciples, especially regarding their aspirations to leadership and power. And in contrast, Jesus advocates and embodies a vocation of leadership predicated upon an ideology of service. The only other characters in Mark beyond Jesus who are shown to have a vocation of service are the women. From the very beginning of the Gospel, where Simon's mother-in-law served the disciples of Jesus after being healed, to the very end of the story where the women minister to Jesus and the disciples as they go up to Jerusalem. Now we need to be careful here not to take Mark's positive role models of women embodying servant leadership and turn them into a role of femininity based on service to men. That would be entirely the wrong way to go about this. But there are and, well, you know, there are strands of Christianity which would require a faithful woman to be subservient to men in home and church life. Well, patriarchy can be very effective at turning women's emancipation against them. But if the word minister comes from the Latin word for service, and the word deacon comes from the Greek word for service, I wonder if our models of leadership, of minister and deacon, whether male or female occupying the role, I wonder if they should be deeply rooted in the serving of others. This disparity between Mark's portrayal of male and female disciples is intensified in his conclusion, where the men desert Jesus at the very point at which their following becomes politically risky. The women stay with him to the cross and after. Consequently, it's the women who are the witnesses to the resurrection, not the men. And I don't think it's too much to suggest that the model of leadership which Jesus teaches, where the leader must be the slave and servant of others, is a model which was primarily fulfilled in Mark's gospel by women rather than men. Gender, as we know, is a social construct. And in the first century, the construct of gender was that women served and men were served. 
So when Jesus says that the Son of Man comes to serve and not to be served, this is a profound reversal of the way in which gender constructs are imagined, because here we have a powerful man being the servant of others. And by contrast, we get these male disciples jockeying for their positions, taking patriarchal, paternalistic models of patronage and emulating them in their desire for power. And it is the women, in contrast, who serve and who therefore are the models for leadership. By this reading, I think Mark is suggesting that in a thoroughly patriarchal socio-cultural order, it is the women who are most fitted to serve as leaders. This would help explain, of course, the appearance of various independent women through the gospel, women who appear without reference to their husbands. Not only, it's not that Mark is rejecting the vocation of marriage any more than he's rejecting the vocation of leadership, but Mark understands that the whole social system of patriarchy, which renders tyrants strong in the world and women subject in the home, he knows that this must be overturned. So the co first concrete step in the last as first revolution is to bring women into leadership. And in order to do that, the rigid definitions of their traditional social roles as wives and childbearers only must themselves then be undermined. In our world, we have far more nuanced, I hope, understandings of gender and gender roles. We no longer have a pattern in our society where women can only occupy servant roles. And we no longer have a pattern in our society where men must be dominating in order to be respected. But Mark's challenge that the least and the last will be the first and the greatest, I think still echoes down to our world, challenging us to notice those places where women are still marginalised and oppressed and violated. Challenging us to take action to bring equality not only by raising up the weak and the vulnerable, but by undermining the very structures and patterns of leadership that perpetuate dysfunctional and abusive gender roles. Patriarchy, paternalism and patronage have no place in Christian communities. And so like Bartimaeus, we need Christ to give us the gift of clear sight if we are to faithfully follow the path of discipleship, where the last are first and the first are last. Let us pray. Loving and most merciful God, we pray that your spirit will uplift and invigorate this congregation. As we commit ourselves to redefining our role mission and contribution to a complex rapidly changing world lest we fall into the temptation of retreating into false certainties and self-serving myths about ourselves may we recognize that our means are limited but our determination is steadfast May we rejoice at our achievements, 
without being complacent about our record. And may we honestly admit our failures without surrendering to pessimism or withdrawing into passivity. May we be able to hold fast to what is good. O oh Lord, hear us as we pray for change. Change in ourselves to start with. Help us leave our comfort zones and hiding places where we can feel proud and brag about our successes or wallow in self-pity when things do not go our way. Help us resist self-righteousness and battle against prejudice, reminding us not to look down on those we disagree with, but also not to cast aside our deep-seated beliefs too quickly or too easily to gain acceptance from others. Help us practice the art of stepping down at the right time, instead of pursuing or clinging to power, merely to fulfill our personal ambitions. O oh Lord, hear us as we pray for justice, justice for the victims of violence, oppression and abuse in the first place. Help us make their voices heard and authorities accountable to the people who have been suffering the consequences of misbehavior or inaction by those in charge. Help us realize the extent to which class, gender, and ethnic barriers elected, erected long time ago have been shaping the workings of society ever since. And how unfair norms still enshrined into law can push some to the margins. Help us recall that for all the progress made, human institutions are far from flawless and that so much work remains to be done. Oh Lord, hear us as we pray for peace. Peace for those who see no alternative to the logic of brute force, retaliation, and cruelty that so frequently permeates the social order to begin with. Help us address major issues and prevent major crises through creativity, boldness and courage to be sure, but also through humbleness, patience and meekness. Help us lay the groundwork for reconciliation through love, compassion and forgiveness, especially where hatred runs deep and healing has no place. 
Help us follow the example of Jesus, who challenged widely held notions of leadership, questioned seemingly immutable societal structures, and showed us the path to your kingdom. Loving and merciful God, hear our prayers. Amen. And now a blessing. <clears throat> Lord, let us go forth into the world in peace, dedicated to your service. <clears throat> let us hold fast to that which is good, render to no person evil for evil, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the needy and the afflicted, and honour all people. Lord, through the world far and wide, let there be light, and may your blessings be upon us and remain with us always. Amen. Amen.